Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. We've got to tell the complete history of Queensland, the colonisation. I've grown up in the state, I'm 66 years old. I've only ever been taught the colonisers' view of what happened. So for a complete history to be provided, that's what we need, the complete history, and we tell it from our perspective, what happened on the colonisation. And then maybe people can understand the ongoing trauma. Treaty and truth-telling in Queensland, but what will it achieve? And reconciling our shared history in the face of resistance and adversity. The majority, like over 90% of Australians, consistently want to build better relationships with First Nations peoples. Where we struggle is how we do this. Where we struggle is when we don't understand how our past and our history shapes who we are today. What we don't understand is that these things are not just about individuals and the interpersonal, that these things are also baked into our structures and our systems. And until we start to address some of those things, we're never going to be able to move forward in the way that we would like to. This is Speaking Out. I'm Jay McAllister. An independent institute will be set up to oversee treaty negotiations with dozens of Queensland's Indigenous nations after landmark laws were passed by State Parliament earlier this month. The legislation will establish a First Nations Treaty Institute as well as a truth-telling and healing inquiry. It's expected the truth-telling component would take the form of both a formal inquiry and a community-focused process. But what is a treaty? How would it improve the lives of Indigenous Australians? And how does truth-telling aid the reconciliation process? Queensland Treaty Advancement Committee co-chair Mick Gooder spoke with producer Manel Creed. In the most basic terms, what exactly is a treaty? A treaty is agreement. Sovereign people come together to work out a way forward, sort out issues they may have, and they'll do a document, and that's what we generally know as a treaty. So once people agree, and that's how we're describing Queensland, everything's on the table, people will put all sorts of things on the table for their particular treaty, and if it's agreed, we end up with a treaty. And from your perspective, why do we need a treaty, and why would that be different from the Treaty of Victoria compared to Queensland? I don't think we're different from Victoria. They're pursuing their treaties in the way they're going and we're pursuing treaties in Queensland the way we've been told people want in Queensland. We've consulted extensively and we really admire Victoria for the way they're going about it. We have a great relationship. We feed off each other. But in the end of the day, if we're going to have treaties, they'll both be the same thing. An agreement between sovereign people, so on one side there'll be the state, on the other side there'll be a treaty party representing a particular area, a particular group of people, and the issues they agree on will become a treaty. Some critics would say that a treaty is a symbolic gesture. How would you respond to that? I'd say symbols are really important in any society. We have symbols for Aboriginal people. We have our flag. We're going to have multiple flags. I know in central Queensland, the Gungaloo people have a flag. So I don't shy away from that. Yes, it could be symbolic, but symbols are very important in any society. I don't think because it's symbolic it 
doesn't mean it's any less effective. I know in Victoria they're looking at a treaty for the whole nation, but I've also heard that in Queensland they're looking at a treaty with each individual nation there. We say in Queensland we probably won't get one treaty. And for me there's a really practical reason for that, and and that is who would Queensland would sign a treaty on behalf of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Queensland. So by very nature it's going to be treaties instead of a treaty. And do you think that that's important? Because previously we've been fighting for a treaty. I think originally it was meant to be for the whole of Australia and now it's going to be statewide. Should we have a treaty for each individual nation or just... Absolutely. See, our view on Queensland, if that's what the treaty party decides, that it's for individual nations, that's what goes ahead. The Queensland government just says everything's on the table when it comes to treaty. Who the treaty party is, and what's going to be in a treaty. Now, I don't think there's an appetite in Queensland, at least, to have one treaty. So therefore, it'll be multiple treaties in Queensland. I think it'll be the same in Victoria. People argue we should have had a treaty in 1888, uh, 1798. You know, the Gadigal people didn't have a right to sign my country away at central Queensland. So if they had signed a treaty, then they would have been... And the British wouldn't have understood this. They could only speak on behalf of Gadigal land, not the rest of Australia. So I think it's it's appropriate that we have treaties for each individual group. And if those groups want to come together and have one treaty, that's their business. And that's where they make it or give what we call free, prior and informed consent. So if people want to go that way, that's fine. But I understand the conversations I've had in Queensland, it's about treaty, not a treaty. This new legislation also includes a truth-telling component. Why is the truth-telling important? We've got to tell the complete history of Queensland, the colonisation. I've grown up in the state. I'm 66 years old. I've only ever been taught the colonisers' view of what happened. So for a complete history to be provided, that's what we need, the complete history, and we tell it from our perspective, what happened on the colonisation and then maybe people can understand the ongoing trauma Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people suffer in this state because it goes way back to how this place was colonised. So telling the truth is the first step in coming to that realisation that things aren't quite what we were told because there's another side of this story. And I've got to say, when we did our consultation, non-Indigenous people were pretty were more upset about not knowing the full history of Queensland colonisation than Indigenous people. So there's everyone in Queensland, I think the curiosity of people is that they want to know what happened. I don't think we can actually move on to treaties until we actually come to that acceptance of this joined history that we have. But at this stage, all we know is one side. I know in Victoria they have the Europe Commission. Would Queensland be looking at having some kind of truth-telling commission as well no, that would deal a, with this? It'll be a truth and healing inquiry that's established under the, under the bill that was passed last week. So we, we're not having a commission inquiry or a royal commission. We're having an inquiry that's specifically designed to do truth-telling in Queensland. So if you look through the legislation, there's all the information in there about what its functions are, how it's convened. You know, there'll be five members. The majority of the five will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There'll be gender balance somehow. There'll be gender considerations. 
So they're the things we've got to decide. That's what the legislation says, and then it goes to the function of the truth. So if people really want to get a bit of a uh, understanding of how the truth-telling inquiry will run, have a look at the legislation. That'll tell you the first thing. The next thing we do is actually design the terms of reference for the inquiry. And then once the Act commences, once it has royal assent, the truth-telling inquiry will be established. So we're doing a bit different to Victoria. They've got a Royal Commission. We've got an inquiry under the under the legislation that was passed last week. And do you think that there is something that should be a major part of the focus of this truth-telling inquiry? I think people need to tell their stories. You know, people will be able to come and tell their stories to the inquiry. We're already working on, on the stuff that we need to get right around data sovereignty and who owns those stories and who gets access to them. So that stuff's being done in the background. No doubt that'll those sort of things will find their way into the terms of reference. So if someone wants to tell a story, they need to be able to control who gets access to that story. So there's a fair bit of preparation happening now. Then the next thing will be done will be uh, uh, there'll be a call for membership somewhere down the track before the end of the year. There'll be terms of reference release. The thing will be established, members appointed, and then they'll be tasked with carrying out the duties that will be articulated in the terms of reference. And we're talking about treaty now, but after having this truth-telling inquiry, how long is that going to take for people to be able to tell their stories or is that just an ongoing thing? Well, it starts for three years and mm. with the possibility of it being extended. So if the inquiry membership says we need more time, like the Royal Commission I was on in the Northern Territory got two extensions, it's not unusual for inquiries like this to be extended. So we establish it for three years to start with, and then it's up to the members to make representations to government if they haven't or they don't look like completing their, their job. We, we put in the legislation, the inquiry's got to provide a report to the minister who has to table it in that, that report in parliament after the first 12 months. So we'll have a bit of an idea what the thinking of the membership of the inquiry is at that point. So we put these things in place in the legislation. So if we haven't covered everything in the terms of reference or the legislation, after 12 months of operation, they'll get a review of the report from the inquiry. So that, that'll give us some clues about how the operations of it's going. So we wanted that in there mm-hmm. to give the membership of the inquiry, the members of the inquiry, some capacity to influence what happens next, whether it's an extension or, or whatever. And do you think that this truth-telling inquiry could lead to better steps towards reconciliation process, or what are your thoughts on that? I, that's the reason we're doing it. You know, mm. we, we were told it needed to be done. I don't think you can have a treaty unless it's, it's based on the truth. So it's now become fundamentally part of the treaty-making process, telling the truth. So the only difference is we in Queensland, we've now legislated the connection between those two things. And Queensland is a little bit different from all the other states and territories that we have here in Australia in terms of the Torres Strait Islands, and they've signed on this statement of Masig. What is your opinion about that, and is this something that should be considered as part of the treaty process? I, I think the Masig statement will guide a lot of the stuff that the Torres Strait Islander people want. It's been endorsed. I could imagine if they have a Torres Strait Treaty, that will be the basis of the Torres Strait Treaty, the Mustic Statement. It's a very important document, but 
I get a bit hesitant to speak on this stuff because it's really Torres Strait Island people who should be talking on behalf of that. Sure, but it's definitely a positive in terms of healing for Torres Strait Islander people and, well, everybody in Queensland. Oh, absolutely. I think I think it's like anything we do in this process. that It's got to have relevance to everyone. I think Aboriginal people, for instance, will look at the Massic State and say, what can we learn from that for our treaties? You know, what we want to put in our treaties. I could imagine that happening. I could imagine non-Indigenous people saying, well, that's a great statement there. What can we do with it to make it more relevant to us? for what, what our needs are. You know, I've been engaging in this game for many years and I constantly hear from non-Indigenous people the same issue we have, that government doesn't talk to us, we just get what they want to give us, and we want to say in that. So the, the view about government is pretty much the same across Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people. And i got no doubt non-Indigenous people will take a lead from this and say, well, we want to say in this stuff that happens in our town or our community as well. I think there's a great potential for those people to join with Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Island people, and maybe they can learn from us instead of everyone looks at all the problems we got. Maybe we got a lot of the answers here for all of Australia. We've lived in this on this country for thousands of years before Europeans came and the things that specifically with, with the treaty, we're the only country or nation in the whole world that doesn't have a treaty with their government. I think we're the only Commonwealth nation. Commonwealth nation, yeah. Treaty. yeah. I think there's lots of people without treaties, but we're the only Commonwealth nation that doesn't have a treaty. Well, people who were colonised by the British. That's right. But we also need, just like the last referendum that we had with the right to vote, if it wasn't for non-Indigenous people or the rest of Australia, we also need them to be part of this voting process as well too. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is, we keep on going back. The whole aim of starting the treaty process was to reframe the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the rest of Queensland. And we've got to keep going back to that as a guiding principle. That's a guiding principle. If some, we're doing something that won't reframe that relationship in a positive way, I don't think we should do it. Absolutely. I always say we need to move forward. We can't change the past, but we can change the future. And Absolutely. part of that is that we move forward together as a whole nation of Australians. Us all moving together where our rights are recognised, our stories are told, and people listen to us, but we come together as a community in Queensland to go forward. Now, that might sound a bit like motherhood and things like that, but I actually believe in it. Most people I work with believe in it. Well, we definitely need for everybody in Australia to be open to treaty. And if it means yeah. that we have treaty with several different nations within the states or territories, we definitely need everybody to be voting on it. Well, they have. 90, 88 out of 92 members of parliament last week voted for the treaty legislation. So you could say 95% of the representatives of Queensland have voted for this. That's a good start. That's Queensland Treaty Advancement Committee co-chair and former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder speaking with producer Manel Creed. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. 
This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Jay McAllister. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The experiences of Stan Grant these past few weeks have shown there remains division in this country over our shared past. So how do we, as a nation, move forward? Karen Mundine, CEO of Reconciliation Australia, will join me shortly. Right now, though, some music from the Pigram Brothers.
The Pigram Brothers there with Rain Dancing, a song taken from their 1997 album, Saltwater Country. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. National Reconciliation Week kicks off this coming week. It's viewed as a time for all Australians to learn about our shared histories, cultures and achievements and to explore how each of us can contribute to achieving reconciliation in Australia. Karen Mundine, welcome back to Speaking Out. It's so great to be with you. Always a pleasure to be here. Now, for those, I guess, unaware, how did Reconciliation Week get started in the early days? Reconciliation Week started out as the week of prayer for reconciliation back in the old Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation days. So that was the predecessor organisation before us. And it was really looking at how do people from different faith communities come together to talk about reconciliation. But of course, when you get different faith communities, they don't all share the same day of worship. So rather than have it as a single day, the council, in conjunction with those communities, decided why don't we turn it into a week? And then every community could actually take whatever was their special or holy day to celebrate, to to contemplate, really, think about what does reconciliation mean to us as people of faith. And so that happened for a couple of years, and it was so successful that the council decided, well, this shouldn't be just about faith communities, and we really like to open it up to the broader community. So that's kind of where it, it started from. And i got to say, you know, every year it grows, it gets bigger, and there are more and more people that are, you know, just stepping up, wanting to engage, wanting to find out more, which is always really exciting. In your time with the organisation, I guess, what are the changes and, and positive changes you've seen over the last decade or so? Being around for the last couple of decades, geez, it makes me sound old. But <laughs> look, again, we've just seen more and more people coming on board, asking questions, getting informing themselves, uh, getting involved, taking action. So it's really exciting to see that movement growing. But as the movement's grown, people have learnt more. So the kind of questions that people are asking about, the kind of things that people, questions people are grappling with, are really big, important questions. They're questions about the truth and stories of our past. It's about how do I, how do we address racism in our workplace? How do we make places safe for mob wherever they are, whether it's going to the theatre or whether it's being at work? What is it that we can do that puts First Nations peoples at the centre of our conversations about what it means to be Australian? So these are really important, big conversations. And what's really exciting is more and more people are getting involved in them. From your perspective, what does a, a reconciled Australia look like and how do we get to that point? Yeah, so for me, I mean, it is about how do we create that just, equitable society and how do we build those better relationships with the broader community that absolutely puts our way of being, doing and thinking at the heart of what it means to be Australian? And also thinking about how do we not just say that in performative ways, so, you know, jerseys at um, football rounds or, you know, acknowledgements of country, but how do we put real meaning and depth behind that? How do we create opportunities for our ways of being, thinking and doing that is absolutely respected, that is valued? Because we're the oldest continuing culture on the earth and our culture exists nowhere else on the earth except for here. So how do we really embrace that as a nation 
and talk about that and embed it into our structures, into our systems, into everything that we do in our society. And when we do that, not only does that support and elevate First Nations peoples, but it creates value for all Australians. You mentioned the concept of truth-telling and a true reflection of our, our shared past. How do we move forward? Is it important that we, we have a process of truth-telling to move forward or is that process happening? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, so I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart really gives us a, a beautiful encapsulation of a whole heap of things that we've been talking about in the reconciliation space for a really, really long time. And to be honest, First Nations people have been talking about for, you know, longer than I've been alive and for as long as I can remember. It is about how do we tell the story of us in this country, and that includes the story of non-Indigenous people and our interactions, that truth-telling, that historical acceptance. It's a really big part of not only our past, but obviously how and where we find ourselves today. And until we address that, until we unpack it, until we own it, we can't really move forward because we'll continue to repeat those mistakes. So it's really important that we think about those things. We think about Makarata, we think about voice, and we think about treaty. These are all parts of how do we recognise First Nations peoples in real and meaningful ways in this nation. Now, be a voice for generations is the theme for this year. What's the significance of this theme? Yeah, so really what we wanted to do is to to honour the work of the generations that came before us, the people who have fought for justice for a very long time in this country. But it's also acknowledging that there is a moment in time today, now, for us to do something that will create better opportunities and better futures for the next generation. So it's a it's a call to action. It's urging all Australians to, to be part of that tradition, to be a voice for generations, honour our past, but acknowledge that we can do something today for the next generation. How do you see this? Is, does this theme have any sort of link to the broader conversations around a voice to parliament? Look, everything that we do is about how do we progress Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's rights, our histories, our culture as part of the broader Australian culture. And obviously there's a debate and discussion going on on around the voice and, and a referendum that will be held later this year. So all of these things are linked, but it's not the silver bullet. It's not the only thing. It's really important and it will certainly set us on a path for better outcomes. Uh, but there are so many other ways that people can use their voice for generations about how we think about truth-telling, how we use our voice to listen, how we use our voice for equality. There are so many ways that people can get involved that are both big and small. But I think really, really the most important part is how do we make sure that our actions are as loud as our voices? Now, I've seen some conversation this past week around racism in the workplace and um, the toll of being a First Nations journalist can often be. Is that a sign that we're not quite there yet? How have you observed the conversations of the past couple of weeks? What's really disappointing is that these conversations of the last uh, couple of weeks are not new. It's a burden that all of us that stand in the, the public domain are a part of, but also, equally, just people who are living their lives are often subject to so many of these things. And my support and my heart goes out to to all people who are struggling with that. And I, I really do hope that they have support structures and support, uh, love and support around them. No, we're not there. And certainly our Australian Reconciliation Barometer tells us that. 
What it also tells us is we have these great intentions. So the majority, like over 90% of Australians consistently want to build better relationships with First Nations peoples. Where we struggle is how we do this. Where we struggle is when we don't understand how our past and our history shapes who we are today. What we don't understand is that these things are not just about individuals and the interpersonal, that these things are also baked into our structures and our systems. And until we start to address some of those things, we're never going to be able to move forward in the way that we would like to. We talk about that as the five dimensions of reconciliation. So race relations, institutional integrity, equality and equity, uh, historical acceptance and unity. And the point about these five different areas, you know, if we want to see a reconciled nation, we have to make be making progress against all five of them. And they're all interconnected. So we can only get so far in one area if we're not dealing with all of them. So racism will continue to rear its head if we don't look at our jobs, if we don't think about what is the equality and equity piece, how do we actually recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as first peoples? How do we give people the respect of that through mechanisms for that voice to be heard? So all of these things are connected. It saddens me that we're not as far as perhaps we would like, but I'm encouraged by the hundreds of thousands of millions of Australians that are out there that who are doing the hard work, who are informing themselves, who are getting active and who are trying to make a difference. And what I hope is that people learn out of these past experiences, that they truly hear what people are saying and are thinking about how do we ensure that this doesn't happen again and how do we ensure that we're actually creating better outcomes for all of us because we all win when we get this right. Karen Mundine, thank you so much for your time. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Jai. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This year's Nadoc Week theme for our elders looks to recognise respected and long-serving members of the Indigenous community. Aboriginal elder Tom Slocky has been nominated in the category of Male Elder of the Year. A retired pastor and public servant, he has helped many people get a roof over their head along the south coast of New South Wales. As the current chairman of Sea Arms, Tom and his colleagues helped tackle issues of housing availability and homelessness. Uncle Tom Slocky, welcome to Speaking Out. Yeah, hello. How are you going? Good, good. Um, so first off, for, for people who may not know you, um, where did you grow up and I guess who and, and what helped shape your worldview? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Tweed Heads. I uh, started school in uh, Tinkan Bay, which is Butchella country, um, which is my grandmother's uh, traditional country, actually. And uh, my dad went up there fishing. He was a fisherman, uh, along with his uncles, and uh, started school in Tinkan Bay. Then uh, was up there, oh, I forget how long, for about five or six years, maybe a bit longer. And then my elder brother, he got killed in the boxing ring down boxing in Sydney. Yeah, right. And that devastated mum and dad and family. And so we moved back to Tweed Heads and uh, we were living in South Tweed Heads and there was a community in South Tweed, another one up at Chindra, Aboriginal Islander so communities, and then a Fingal. And so we all, all get on pretty well with one another and uh, everyone helped one another. Like if we went out fishing, if we caught 
10 fish, we'd keep two for ourselves and share the other eight. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, that, that was just an example of everyone helping one another. We we grew up with not a lot of money. There wasn't a, wasn't, uh, uh, you know, public um, service money then. Um, mm. And we, uh, we all helped one another out. But I think what shaped my, uh, my values was uh, my, my mum, my dad, my brothers, my uncles and aunties, and just the community in general. Mm. And, you know, they were strong on uh, on principles, on on values. They would look after one another, care for one another, care for the environment. Uh, you know, it's a caring, sharing community. Mm. And I remember we didn't have a house, so mum and dad bought a block of land and the uncles all pitched in and helped us build a house, which was just fantastic, you know. And then there was only a little fibro cottage. Uh, but, you know, just... It taught me that you know we can do things together, and so from there, uh, there was a bit of racism in the in the town, uh, and uh, I started my uh, I started work uh, when I was fifteen. Left school. My dad suddenly died, had a heart attack, and uh, that pitched us into you know like we had to look after one another. My mum was out picking beans and peas. We were out peeling prawns and doing making money. We never went. We never got any what we call then the doll. And I think that um, formed our our, our my understanding of how to help one another and how how important it is to do your bit. You know, mm. we we buckled down and made sure we got educated. Uh, so I joined the army, and that took me on another trajectory of my um, growing up. And of course, the army uh, taught me a, a different set of values. Um, but here I was, was in a white world, uh, not in an Aboriginal world anymore. And I had to adapt, which I suppose mum and dad taught me that how to, you know, adapt and integrate. Uh, and but I still was, you know, an Aboriginal man, proud Aboriginal man. And I think I, I felt I was disconnected to my community and my people. In the army, but I stayed in the army for because that was uh, a, a a job for me. I, it, I got married. There was a there was a support for me to look after my family. They give you housing, and so I stayed in the army for a number of years until I finally, uh, you know, one one of me one of me mates in the army had just come back from Vietnam, and he said, "Why don't you come down to Batemans Bay, Slocky?" And um, I was based in Canberra then. And so I ended up in Bateman's Bay because I said, is there any, any blackfellas down there? He said, oh, there's heaps of blackfellas. I said, I'm with you. So I went down there and played football. And the Bay Tigers had not won a premiership for 40 years, I think, and um, I was in the team that won the premiership and, of course, we were the town's heroes and um, was AWOL for a few days. And But the, the good thing was I met an Aboriginal community. I met an Aboriginal family. I met my beautiful wife in Bateman's Bay, got married, had four children, took her back in the army for a while, and then when I got out of the army, I finally settled in Batemans Bay. Do you think that these experiences sort of influenced you and and what you've done in your life um, over the last, say, two decades or so with your your work with housing and and homelessness? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I didn't, like I said earlier, God was in front of me, I think, because I didn't plan to go into housing. Uh, but when I got out of the army, I didn't have a job. And uh, I thought, I'll leave it in God's hands. And anyway, 
I think I got out the army. Uh, my official discharge date was like February the 6th. And I never looked around for a job. And I think the week before February 6th, I get a phone call from the um, pastor Oncology Cruise, who at that time was the, the elected member for the National Aboriginal Conference, NAC. Of course, you know, we're talking about a voice now, but we had we had the Aboriginal Ab, National Aboriginal uh, Community. There was NACC, then NAC, and before ATSIC came along. And they were elected by people all around Australia. And Uncle Ozzy wanted me to uh, be his electoral officer. So naturally, the first thing I've done was go around to all the communities from Wollongong down to um, Goulburn, Canberra, and Canberra, Queanbeyan, Cooma, Eden, up the coast of Maitland's Bay, Nara. And I got to introduce myself and to help uh, the communities, you know, write submissions. But I could see that housing was a big need. So I got I got more involved in writing submissions for housing, and then ATSIC coming along, I got part of ATSIC, and housing was part of ATSIC uh, portfolio. So at the same time, I was I was chairing the Aboriginal Housing Company in Batemans Bay, called it Butterwing Aboriginal Corporation, and it sort of um, helped Aboriginal people get into housing. Not the the organisation I worked with Aboriginal elders in the community and Aboriginal leaders. And we worked together to build our housing portfolio up because we, and it just made a big difference. What I, As I look back and reflect on my time in housing, I, just before I got out the army, I got into uh, uh, military housing. And from that uh, led me to Aboriginal community housing. And of course, from that, um, I became sort of known for my expertise in, in looking after people who are homeless and people who are who just you know put them into house and look after house because I I still think that that ha- 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 the the supply of housing is one thing for our Aboriginal community, but the management of that housing is more important for the long term for sustainability. So I invested a lot of time into making sure that we built the 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 leadership up and built the management up to make sure that we sustain our housing. So that's that was my involvement in housing. And from there, I got invited by the New South Wales government to head up the an Aboriginal Development a Housing Committee. Um, and from that that committee, we uh, advised the government of New South Wales. Um, it was a Labor Party government then. Um, we had a really good Premier, Bob Carr, and uh, a really good housing minister, uh, Craig Knowles. And we, um, we formed, we got the Aboriginal Housing Act enacted legislation in New South Wales, which I'm pretty proud of. I think it's the only legislation in the world that's got an Aboriginal housing perspective to it. Why do you think um, there is such an issue with, I guess, housing within the Aboriginal community? Um, and, and I guess what are the, what are the barriers? People think that um, uh, people that haven't experienced, I guess, racism when, when applying for a rental property or, or purchasing a property probably wouldn't understand. But what, I guess, are the barriers for housing? So I, I think the barrier is still racism. I think white fellas think they know what's best for us, but there is uh, a lot, still a lot of homeless around. Uh, and the key message that I'd like to put out is that we need more housing. Um, the big issues are, are still, of course, the in today's society is the lack of housing, both in the private market and in the public market in the community um, housing. And I think governments have really... Um, let our people down, let our communities down, not just our Aboriginal communities down, and not really making this an issue 
for the last 20, 30 years to sort of let the market dictate to how the supply works. Well, it's not working for for those who are vulnerable in this in this society, those who are really needy in the society. It's not working for us. It might work for those who've got good jobs and, um, and can afford it, but even now today it's become very unaffordable for a lot of people. So the big issue today is more housing, right? housing first. I think government should think of housing first because if you've got housing first, you can you can ad- help address all the other issues of health, education, employment. But you need housing first. You need a, a, a foundation. And, you know, for my family growing up, our foundation was a house. Mm. Uh, in traditional society, it was the camp, right? Um, it, it was the place that, where you belonged and where you grew your family. So it's uh, taken a taken a while, but uh, we, I think the big challenge for Aboriginal housing at the moment is, of course, um, the leadership and the workforce. Uh, the number one issue, of course, is supply. We need more housing. Uh, we've got a lot of homelessness. We've got a lot of overcrowding. We need more housing. We need more Aboriginal housing controlled by community. And then we can build our sustainability and give people security uh, for their properties over time. So in, in private market, you don't have security. But obviously, in Aboriginal people, you know, rent, being able to rent, but you know, being kicked out after twelve months and and become um, on the go on the waiting list. Another, another thing I like to say is, well, our 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 statistics for homelessness is not really registered anywhere because the mainstream system makes you uh, register under their criteria, which is in New South Wales called a pathway. A lot of Aboriginal people don't enter it because it's so complicated and so invasive. Um, so there is a lot of need out there, a lot of housing need, and we need more housing is the message that I want to try to get through. And that's what I work at both at a community level and at a national level and at a state level. Just with C-Arms, um, what can you tell us about that organisation? Uh, C-Arms was formed. Uh, as a regional management services for a lot of small uh, organisations who are finding it difficult to, to be sustainable, right, to collect the rents, to pay all the bills. So it was a management system supported by the Aboriginal Housing Office in New South Wales, and it's grown since then. Uh, we knew that uh, to be to sustain ourselves, we, need, we needed growth. We couldn't get growth from government to... Um, to grow, we haven't we haven't had any new properties within the Aboriginal housing um, community control for about twenty years. It's all gone to public housing or to mainstream housing. It's almost like we've been uh, there's been an, a, a still assimilation for housing. Like the white fellas know how best to do it, so let let's give them all the money. They're, they're failing miserably as meeting the need as far as public housing and, and mainstream do do a good job in meeting our people. But C Arms was formed so that we could grow the organisation to provide housing for our own people. Uh, we've grown from, we used to manage housing for a number of uh, small organisations, land councils and Aboriginal corporations. We still manage some of those, but we've taken over management of a lot of Aboriginal housing office properties, both in Nara, Queanbeyan, and in Batemans Bay and Maruya, Yorubadala area. And so we've grown the organisation to to almost 500 properties now, mm. uh, and it's a, it's a it's 
quite a big organisation, but we're trying to provide the best service possible to our people. But I said, I'll go back to what I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. The key message is we need more housing for our people. Now, um, the reason that we're catching up today is because you've um, been nominated as um, Male Elder of the Year at this year's NAIDOC Awards. I guess, what does that nomination mean to you on a personal level? The, well, I always thought I was a humble person, but I'm, you know, look, it's it's uh, it's a it's a it's an honour, I suppose, to be nominated, right? to be recognised. Um, I think everyone should be recognised for the work they put in their community, and there's probably a lot of people who are, who could, should have been nominated, could have been nominated along with myself. But I I, I think it's more of a reflection on what. I've done with other people um, alongside me, as well as my family, uh, you know, extended family and the community itself. Uh, And I've um, always put myself out there to be a a voice, a representative for our people. So I think it's good to have a recognition for that. Totally. And and what would, uh, say, you win the award, uh, what would that mean to you? Uh, it would mean, uh, yes, people recognise that I've been a good uh, servant of the people, uh, that I've tried my best, that I've put in as much as uh, talent and gifts as God given me, I've used to try to help other people and sustain people through their life. Now, look, personally, it will it will be nice to win it, but it's not the end of the world for me if I don't, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, totally. Well, Uncle Tom Slocky, mate, um, thank you so much for um, for stopping by for a chat today. Yeah, you're welcome. God bless. That's Uncle Tom Slocky. He's nominated for Male Elder of the Year at this year's NAIDOC Awards, set to take place July 1st in Brisbane. To take us out this week, some music from Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Here they are with Hold On.
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for an in-depth look at the barriers facing Indigenous Australians in the media. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by myself, Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Jay McAllister. Thank you.